This is the podcast for the Jeremiah Johnston Show. Don't forget that you can listen to us across the Faith Radio Network for the entire hour, Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. Central or 10 a.m. Eastern. If you want your question read on the show or have any comments, send it to Jeremiah at askjjj.com. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the Jeremiah Johnston Show, combining cutting-edge biblical scholarship with meaningful, thought-provoking discussions and practical answers to your questions. It's time to own your faith and be a Christian thinker with our host, author, Bible scholar, apologist, and president of the Christian Thinker Society, Dr. Jeremiah Johnston. Welcome to the show. Now, no one wants to be in a battle, but let's face it, as Christians, we're in a spiritual battle. In fact, the great Bible teacher Warren Wiersbe once said that the Christian life is not a playground, it is a battleground. And if you were a follower of Jesus, we're in a spiritual battle. Now, anyone with military experience will tell us the value of knowing your enemy and what you're up against. And that is what we're going to be discussing today in this program that I've actually dedicated in honor of the title of my Bible study, The Dark Side. When you and I see the truth about Satan, demons, and the pervasive paranormal world, we're going to know our enemy, but we're also going to see in this broadcast all the tools the strength, and the power to be a super overcomer that we've been given in and through Jesus Christ to stand up and overcome these evil forces around us. Guess what? We don't need to be afraid. We shouldn't be afraid when talking about the supernatural world as followers of Jesus. When we see the truth of who we are in Jesus Christ, in the armor that is available to us right now, we can confidently stand against the devil's schemes to entrap and enslave. You're going to love this broadcast. Today is all about overcoming the dark side. Stay with us. I'm Jeremiah Johnston. Welcome to session one of The Dark Side, where we dive right in together to one of the most fascinating and exhilarating passages in the New Testament. It comes to us from the final book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, chapter 12, and we see six key verses that every single follower of Jesus needs to know, and we need to know them well. Why? Because we see the ultimate victory of Jesus Christ over Satan himself. Who is the devil? I mean, I don't think any of us need any convincing that there is a very evil world around us. But behind all the mayhem and the evil in the world, the scripture teaches that there is a really, there is a very real demonic force. And he has a name. His name is the devil. His name is Satan. And we hear about this evil figure who has been utterly cast out of heaven and he's been utterly defeated by Jesus Christ and the victory that he won for us on the cross. The beauty of these six verses, and I think it's key that we start here in the dark side, is that we start from the right position. As a follower of Jesus Christ, I do not need to live in fear of Satan. Satan does not have power over me. And I also need to have right theology. A lot of people give Satan way too much credit, I think. It's important that we understand Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. Satan is not omnipresent. He is not everywhere. And Satan is certainly not um, all-powerful. Only God is. But it is important that we see that Satan is effective in attacking us. And so as we open up Revelation chapter 12 contextually, we read of the actual event of Satan's 
defeat. And this is why, as a Christian, we don't need to fear Satan. But I want to ask you a question. Who is the devil? I mean, have you done a biblical study of who the devil is? I mean, the scriptures tell us in Matthew chapter 13, he is the enemy. He is the evil one in Matthew chapter 13. He is the tempter. We hear that in Matthew 4, and we hear that again in 1 Thessalonians 3, 5. He is our adversary. What, did you, what does Jesus say the very DNA of Satan is? He says he is the father of all lies and deceit. You are of the father, your devil. You want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is what? There is no truth in him. We see that Satan will even disguise himself as an angel of light. We hear that in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Now, according, though, to John, as we open up this passage, we see very clearly he's actually called the dragon. We get no less than five descriptors. And this is, I, I'm a wordsmith. I love to pay attention to the very words of Scripture. So if you're following along, you should circle these. We see in verse 9, five different descriptors of the devil. He is called the great dragon. He is called the serpent, the devil, Satan. And notice this, and this really gets my attention because I've had the privilege to work with people all over the world. He is the one who deceives the whole world. Can you remember a time that perhaps the enemy deceived you? I can remember a time when the enemy deceived me. Isn't that a powerful descriptor of his work and his person? I think oftentimes, though, we hear the word devil or Satan, and we, we think that's his given name. That is not the given name of the devil. That just simply is a descriptor of his evil body of work. In the New Testament, we see that there are actually 10 different titles that Satan is given. He's given Beelzebub, Satan, devil. We see all of these different descriptors that describe the different ways that he attacks us as Christians. We see it playing out in the very way that he attacked Jesus and his ministry in the first century. But in context, we see here that Satan was utterly defeated through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's why John repeats in this passage, and you're going to see it this week in your study, you're going to love it, five different times we see that Satan was defeated and cast out of heaven. Satan no longer has access to God's presence. He no longer has access to God's kingly power in heaven, but he was banished to earth. I think a lot of Christians have this misnomer. They think that Satan is somehow in hell right now. Satan locatively is not in hell. He is on earth with his demonic forces. And what is he up to now? He is attacking every single follower and believer in Jesus Christ. He has a strategy to attack us. And what is he doing? We see that here in verses 10, 11, and 12. Satan is relentless to accuse us. I think oftentimes a defeated enemy can be the most dangerous because they have nothing to lose. And Satan is certainly the defeated enemy. He knows that. And if you skip down and you look at the end of verse 12, it says, he knows his time is short. And so he is ferociously coming against you in your spiritual life. Listen, if you're wanting to live for God, Satan right now is working in counterattack against you. You must know this. And so that's why first we see theologically and positionally, Satan has been defeated. But guess what? He's still there. He's still coming against us, and it says here that he becomes and is our accuser. Notice that it says he accuses them day and night. I think it's important we understand that Satan is constantly trying to discourage us through, the, through lies, and we can all think of lies that we believe from the enemy, and that's where it's important, again, as we've already said, that Scripture corroborates Scripture, and I want to encourage you that when Satan comes against you and tries to get 
to lie to you about who you are in Jesus or the victory that you have and the forgiveness that he's won you, don't ever forget Romans chapter 8 when Satan tries to accuse you. What is Romans 8 verse 1 says? I want to read it to you. There is no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. Don't for a second buy into the lies or the deceit of the enemy when he tries to accuse us. And then go home and read verse 31 to 35. What can we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can bring an accusation against us? No one can because we are utterly victorious in Jesus Christ. And so that's why this rejoicing breaks out in heaven that Satan has been defeated through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And that's why we start right here in the dark side. We see who Satan is, we see his evil body of work, but then we see immediately that he has indeed been defeated. This is a very interesting subject to talk about, and it's certainly not a subject that as believers in Jesus Christ, we should have any fear or trepidation to discuss. 63 times in the Gospels, we see that this plural word demons is used. It's something that Jesus talked about all of the time, and it's something as believers that we need to know about in our faith, and it will actually strengthen and embolden our faith to know what Jesus, what the scriptures teach about demons, and obviously our victory over them, but specifically how we attack demons in our spiritual life, how we overcome those demons. Now, this is a very unique passage, and I want you to look at it with me. It comes to us in Mark chapter 9, verses 17 to 29. And I think this is one of the neatest passages in the Gospels because we have a very interesting episode that's playing out. And I want you to just think about it as we read this study together and as you open it in your Bible study time together. I want you to think about it because... We always read scripture in context. One of the most important hermeneutical principles that you can have as a Bible student, that just simply means how we interpret the Bible, is when we read the New Testament, yes, we read it with 21st century context. I mean, you're going to read the Bible right now in this Bible study through the problems, through the controversies, through the blessings, through your marriage, through the scope of your life, but it is so important we read it with a first century mindset. And so that's my job as a Bible scholar, just to simply guide you by the hand back to the first century so that we can read the Bible in context. Remember, it's not hard to do heresy. All we need to do to have heresy is simply have the Bible in no context or Jesus in no context. So let's look at this in the context of Mark chapter 9. Jesus has his transfiguration experience as we open up the beginning of chapter 9. And I think this is fantastic because he takes those three disciples with him, the three of his inner circle. And who appears? Elijah appears, Moses appears, and Jesus is transfigured before them. And it's fascinating because, and and this is very important for our context, in verse 3 of chapter 9 it said, in his clothes Jesus became dazzling. The Holman Christian Bible says they were extremely white. And I love what the translation says, as no launder on earth could whiten them. Jesus is glistening before them. If you can imagine this, he was so bright, it was as if they needed to shield his eyes. And they have this transfiguration experience, this mountaintop spiritual experience. And remember the disciples, Peter says to Jesus, they want to stay there, they don't want to leave it, and yet they have to continue on mission. And so the very next scene in the Gospels, verse 14, is where we pick up our studies. Jesus is coming down the mountain with his disciples. And what happens? Large crowds immediately gather around him. And as a Bible scholar, we have to immediately ask, what's different about this scene? I mean, 
people were walking around the, around the, around the world of Jesus, around mountaintop. That, that was no issue. They're coming, down the, they're coming down the mountain peak, and Jesus' clothes are most likely, Bible scholars think, still glistening. People saw this man who was walking down, and he looks different, and they immediately run after him. And exactly what happens, the disciples encounter a father who is having a problem with a demon who has possessed his son. And make no mistake, this is the only place in the Gospels where the disciples are unable to cast out a demon. So this is, this is a very definitive moment in the life of Jesus. And, and I like this part in the Gospels because and this is what's neat about the Bible, is it doesn't give us an airbrushed version of Christianity. We really see that Jesus in his full humanity here. And I like this scene because we see Jesus being a little bit sarcastic. Now, can you be a little sarcastic sometimes? I can. Uh, because as this, as this scene plays out in verse 17, it says, Teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. So as we're going to see as we study demons this week, they will attack us. There is a very real attack from demonic strongholds around us. Demons can cause problems physically. They can cause problems, of course, spiritually. They can attack us in, the, in ways in which the, um, we're not even prepared for. And the father is complaining to Jesus because he brought his boy to his disciples, and he said, your disciples were unable to cast out this demon. In verse 22, he says, and many times it has thrown him into the fire or water to destroy him. Now, I see myself in verse 22, and this is what we, we see unpacked in this study. The father says, Jesus, if you can do anything to help us, will you? And this is where we see a little bit of Jesus' sarcasm, and I just love this. Jesus looks at him in verse 23 and says to the father, if I can, <laughs> if I can do anything. And of course, the message is when we bring Jesus into any situation where there is a demonic stronghold, it is a game changer. And this is really what I think is so important, whether you're a pastor, whether you're a Bible study leader, if you're just a Christian in your family, just trying to live for the Lord in the midst of the busyness and the vicissitudes of life, it is so important that we invite Jesus into every situation where there is demonic activity, be it with our family, in this case, the father with his son. How are you bringing Jesus into that situation right now where there might be a spiritual stronghold? We see that the father does that. And you know what? I see myself and the father all the time, don't you? Jesus, if you can do anything, would you please help us? If you can. And here the whole time, Jesus has the keys to the kingdom. Jesus says, if I can, watch me. And here's where I think is the most powerful, one of the most powerful verses, and probably one of my, uh, one of, I think my favorite verse in the New Testament, verse 24. We see again the transparency of the Father. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out, I believe, Jesus, help my unbelief. Is that where you see yourself? It's amazing how confused the enemy can make us sometimes where we believe things about faith. Certainly we know things theologically, but at the same time we need God to help us through our unbelief, don't we? And I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. And Jesus comes into the situation, and I love this. And if we had time to unpack this, exorcism was a huge business in the first century. Exorcists were professionals. They were highly trained. It was very expensive to exorcise a demon. They would go through all kinds of chicanery. They would wear special outfits. They would have special uniforms. And what does Jesus do? He just looks at the demon and he said, I command you, come out. 
and the demon does. Then it came out shrieking and throwing him. I'm looking at verse 26 into a terrible convulsions. The boy became, notice this, like a corpse so that many said, he is dead. Again, we still have the skeptics in the audience. Jesus has entered the situation, they think he's dead. But Jesus, verse 27, taking him by the hand, raised him and he stood up. Now, that's a very important Greek word. Gyro in Greek. It is the exact same word that we see every time there is an actual bodily resurrection in the New Testament. We are promised the resurrection more than two dozen times, more than any other promise in the New Testament. Jesus raises the boy. And you know what? Jesus can lift you out of that demonic situation right now. He can lift your children out of that demonic situation. But we have to ask ourselves, where are we at in the story? Are we like the Father? I mean, we have been in this demonic stronghold for so long. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Or are we like the boy, we're having the effects so much so that it leaves us feeling dead? Let's invite Jesus into the situation as we study Mark chapter 9, verses 17 to 29. We've got to step away for a quick break. You're listening to The Jeremiah Johnston Show, and today we're studying the dark side, how we can be overcomers of all the spiritual forces against us through the mighty power we have in Jesus Christ. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Jeremiah Johnston Show. We now move into session three, the paranormal. You know, even many people who don't believe it's the paranormal world is real think that it can be, quote, fun to play with the paranormal. But guess what? There's a huge problem with that. The paranormal is a slippery slope. Once a person gets curious and opens the door to the paranormal world, it only has negative effects on the life. And once that door is open, listen to me very closely, it can be very difficult to close it. Yet people continue to be intrigued with the paranormal world. You know, what do movies or TV shows bank on with our cultural interest in the paranormal? So dabbling with evil is destructive. We're going to see that, but we're also going to see the power of seeking direction from God alone when we need wisdom for life. Check out this next portion. The Lincoln bedroom in the White House is a little bit of a misnomer because President Lincoln never actually slept there. He just simply worked there. Well, during World War II, Winston Churchill says that he had a paranormal experience and that one day after a lengthy bath, he entered the Lincoln bedroom wearing, as he said, only a cigar, and he claimed to see the ghost of Abraham Lincoln. And he said, President Lincoln, you seem to have me at a disadvantage. <laughs> well, ghost stories are kind of like urban le legends, and it seems like almost everyone has one. And if you look at the studies that are coming out of universities, you're going to see that 70 to 80 percent of Americans have had some kind of paranormal experience. Uh, one thing that I've always enjoyed doing as a Bible teacher is going around the room and having people share if they've had an experience of, as the scripture says, an angel unaware. I remember getting in a car accident in Trenton, New Jersey, and was pulled from a wrecked vehicle by an African-American man. I couldn't get out of the car. It was like a nightmare scene. And when I got to the median, this gentleman helped me, got me to the end, made sure I was okay. A few minutes later, the police came. I looked around and that man was gone. And I wonder in my heart of hearts if that perhaps was an angelic experience. Well. Very similar to what we read right here in Deuteronomy 18, we see that there is a very real spiritual world that all of us come into contact with on a daily basis. Now, 
The interesting thing about Deuteronomy 18 in this session three of the dark side is we see that there are very real paranormal devices that Satan uses to try to entrap us. And this is where we need to understand as believers in Jesus Christ that we are not to have any contact with the paranormal world around us from a demonic perspective. I think it's very important that we point out when you look at the book of Acts, when you see the great revival that took place when Paul preaches at Ephesus, they brought all of their magic books together and they got rid of them. And by the way, 50,000 pieces of silver would be the equivalent of six to seven million US dollars today. So this was no small sum. And they got rid of all of that paranormal junk. And I think it's important as we open up Deuteronomy 18, we see that this is nothing new in the Old Testament. It's certainly nothing new today, but we need to avoid any kind of interaction with the paranormal world around us. Now, you need to know, and I think the context is so helpful to us, in the first century world of Jesus, exorcism was a huge business. In fact, if you wanted to have a good income, just be a professional exorcist in the first century. When you look at Acts chapter 19, when, Jesus, when, when the Apostle Paul is at work in the city of Ephesus, he is engaging that de demonic spirit. And we see that there's different things playing out. The seven sons of Sceva are there, and they're attempting to do exorcism. And what does the demon say to them in Acts 19? Jesus I know, Paul I know, who are you? And we have this extra detail where Luke tells us in the book of Acts that those those exorcists were overcome and they ran away naked. Now, if you don't know anything about the context, you're like, wait a minute, why did they run away naked? That's a little awkward. Well, again, in the first century, if you were an exorcist, you wore a unique uniform. Think about it today like professional sports. They have a helmet, they have shoulder pads, they have a uniform that they go into battle with. Very similar in the first century, they had a uniform, it had phylacteries on it. They would have a huge magic book and they would say, I adjure you by the greatest name I can find. And they, they would use the name of Solomon, those first century Jewish exorcists. This is why it's so unique when Jesus comes on the scene and the apostle Paul is on the scene and they can cast out a demon with a word. This is why the crowd is in amazement. It's so much so that Jesus can even cast out demons over long distance. We read about this in the Gospels. You know what's fascinating, what we know from extra-biblical evidence of the Bible? The name of Jesus was so famous in the Mediterranean world. We have no less than 10 archaeological finds that invoke the name of Jesus in magic and incantation spells. I'm talking about prayer bowls. Um, this is fascinating. We may have the earliest fragment, or really evidence, for the Christian faith. It's called the Jesus, Jesus Cup. It, was, it could be late first century, early second century, where it says, through Christ, it's actually called the Magician's Cup, and it's invoking this name, Christ, in a magical spell. Jesus' name was associated with power, so much so that even if you didn't necessarily believe in him or follow him, you knew that if you invoke this name of Jesus, the demons ran. Isn't that a fascinating parallel for us today and how we need to, in any paranormal situation, bring Jesus into that situation? And we see that in Deuteronomy 18. And you know what's powerful about this? Really, what's the context? It's, it's a search for wisdom in Deuteronomy 18. It's this occultic practice and divination. I'm amazed today when I've done research into the paranormal world, how Christian it can sound. It, it promises to give you wisdom about a difficulty in life. It promises to get, help you make a difficult decision. It sounds so Christian in its messaging. 
And that's why I think it's powerful in Deuteronomy 18, 15, that right here, Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like for me among your own brothers. You must listen to him. We get this mountain peak passage about a coming prophet. And of course, this is a messianic promise of Jesus Christ that only true wisdom and knowledge can be found in him. And so please don't buy into the empty, vague promises of the paranormal world. Know that only wisdom can be found in Jesus. Thanks for joining us on Faith Radio, the Jeremiah Johnston Show. Friends, we're going to continue studying the dark side, how we overcome the demonic forces in our life. The Bible study really pivots at this point because after three weeks of studying Satan, demons, and the paranormal from Revelation chapter 12, Mark chapter 9, and then Deuteronomy 18, we pivot now to the point of as a follower of Jesus. Remember, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me and I give it to you. We come to, I think, one of the mountain peak passages in the New Testament, and that is at 1 John chapter 4, where we see that we have nothing to be afraid about. We see that the ultimate victory has already been assured for us in Christ, but we also see that we are an active participant in that victory with Jesus. So open up, if you would, 1 John 4 with me as we unpack what is a powerful study about, about not being afraid. Too many Christians are afraid when we bring up the paranormal. It reminds me of what we've already said, that C.S. Lewis said. What, what he explained in the screw tape letters and his famous preface. Some people have an overwhelming fascination with demons, while others ignore their existence altogether. Either of those are the wrong, are the wrong attitude. We need to have an attitude that is simply biblical-centric as we approach the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. So I think this is fascinating because as we see here in 1 John chapter 4, there is a spirit of Antichrist even in the first century when John was writing this letter to his church. And of course, he's writing this from Ephesus. John says, don't believe every spirit in verse 1, but test the spirits. I can say this as a follower of Jesus, as a Bible scholar, as a professor at the sixth most diverse university in America. We need discernment now as followers of Jesus, unlike any other time in our faith. I mean, have you noticed that we have the most educated church of all time, and yet the most biblically illiterate? Does it bother you like it bothers me that most Christians think that Billy Graham preached the Sermon on the Mount? <laughs> he didn't. Um, I was teaching graduate students in Canada, I'll never forget this, and they thought that Mother Teresa was the best answer for who preached Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I mean, this is the world in which we live. We need discernment. You need discernment for the spiritual battles that you are facing, and there is a way that we combat the spirit of Antichrist, and we begin by doing that with discernment. John goes on to say, there are many false prophets who have gone out into the world, and we all see the effects of false teaching. We see the effects of it in the world of Jesus, and we certainly see the effects of it today. So how do we combat this spirit of Antichrist that is active? It's an active agent. Look at verse 2. This is how you know the Spirit of God. How do we know the Spirit of God? Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not confess Jesus is from God, this is the Spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, even now is already at work in the world. And this is where, as followers of Jesus, we need to know something of what's happening in history. This is the exciting thing as we open the New Testament. I want to just share something with you. Do you know that if we cannot believe that Jesus has come in the flesh historically, we cannot believe anything from late antiquity? I want you to think about this for a moment. 
When we look at all of the evidence around the humanity of Jesus, the fact that Jesus really did live, that he came into the earth, that he had a ministry, do you realize that as a Bible scholar, as a historian, I have to appeal to Roman emperors for the same manuscript evidence and attestation that we have for Jesus of Nazareth? That is fascinating, ladies and gentlemen. In fact, you know, we're in a coffee shop right now. And I meet a lot of friends, and they will say, Jeremiah, you know, that's neat that you're a follower of Jesus, but, you know, don't start with the Bible. I mean, do you really believe that Jesus existed? Do you really believe that there was someone named Jesus of Nazareth, historically speaking? You know what's fascinating? What we know from manuscript evidence, what we know from inscriptions, what we know from the archaeological remains of Jesus in Judaica. Do you know that we can build near, nearly 70 facts, 70? 70 facts about the birth, the life, the death, the burial, and yes, the resurrection of Jesus from extra-biblical evidences before we ever open the New Testament. Do you know how fantastic that is? We have solid, solid evidence to believe that Jesus Christ came. We do exactly what John said here. This is how we beat back the spirit of Antichrist. And it's up to you. It's not up to just a few Delta Force Christians. You need to know these things. We need to own our faith. We need to do what Jesus commanded us in Matthew 22:37. Love the Lord your God with what? Your heart, your soul, but also what? Your mind. Here's another great analogy that you should share with your group. When you go to the land of Israel, there are over 300 archaeological digs that happen twice a year. Now, most of those, over 90%, are led by secular organizations. They would not be led by what we would refer to today as an evangelical organization. They're usually state-sponsored schools that do archaeological digs. Recently, I find myself in Israel, and I'm with two of my good friends who are archaeologists. One is an atheist, Jewish man. One is an agnostic from the University of North Carolina. I'm sitting there at this archaeological site. I'm looking around at what kind of resources they have in their hands to make sure they're digging in the right spot. Remember, archaeological sites, these digs only happen twice a year. They're expensive. You have to have investment. You have to have students fly over. You have to make sure you are digging in the right spot. You have a lot riding on to make sure that that is the right spot that you're digging. I'm fascinated. I'm watching these atheist and agnostic archaeologists. Do you know what book they have in their hand when they're digging? Five books, actually. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts. I sit there and say to myself, wow, do I need any other analogy that we have a faith that is based on evidence? We can say with a surety, just like John said in 1 John 4, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And then we can do even more than that. We can affirm his divinity. How can we affirm Jesus' divinity? Don't, don't forget what Jesus predicted. He predicted his death and resurrection. Mark 8, 31, Mark 9, 31, Mark 10, 33 and 34. Jesus not only proclaimed his resurrection, he demonstrated it. And we see there is solid evidence for that. And then finally we come to the end. You are from God, little children, and you have conquered them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Ladies and gentlemen, all authority has been given to you if you are a follower of Jesus. Embrace the victory that is yours, but know something about your faith so that when you do come against satanic forces, you can carry the day through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit within you.
What an important point to step in now and talk about immediate steps to overcoming fear. Uh, first off, memorize 1 John 4, 4. Do you remember what the scriptures tell us? You, dear children, are from God and you have overcome the enemy because the one who is in you is greater than the one who's in the world. Memorize 1 John 4, 4. Um, put it on something you can look at every day and know that you don't need to fear because Christ is so much greater than anything the world offers and Christ lives in you. We're going to be back with the next part of the message. Hey, welcome back to the show. This is the most exciting part of our Dark Side message today, where we talk about two really important aspects if you want to be an overcoming Christian as it relates to spiritual warfare, battle armor, and the battle plan. This is where we get to exegete Ephesians chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 4. Make sure you have your Bible out if you're listening to this, taking notes, uh, because God is going to speak to you about your battle armor and your st strategic battle plan to overcome the enemy in your life. We can follow Jesus' example in defeating spiritual attacks. Welcome back to session five of The Dark Side, where we look at a passage that is really a mountain peak in the New Testament, especially as we relate to the dark side and the spiritual forces of wickedness that attack every one of us as followers of Jesus. Of course, I'm referring to Ephesians chapter six, verses 10 through 20. Now, I wanna set it up this way. If you read John Bunyan's classic, Pilgrim's Progress, when, when Christian is armed in the house called Beautiful, before he attacks Apollyon, before he goes to war with this, this demonic figure from his old home, City of Destruction, he is armed and equipped for battle with six weapons. But make no mistake, he is not given any armament. He's not given any armor for his back. You know what's interesting about that? It tells me right off the bat, as Christians, we cannot be in retreat mode anymore. My favorite passage in the New Testament is Jude 3, where the brother of our Lord is saying, you know, I want to write to you about the deep things of the faith, but yet I need to stop and tell you, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend is an interesting Greek word, epigonizomai. It's the word that means continue to attack. Too many of us as Christians, when we get in a demonic attack, we're in retreat mode. We're running away. But guess what? Like we see in Pilgrim's Progress, there's no armor for our back. No wonder we're being taken out. And so as we open Ephesians 6, and this week in our studies as we teach this, it's so important that we teach it contextually because we see that there are six weapons, and they are naturally available to every single person as a Christian. It doesn't happen automatically, though. We have to put on these things. We see action words. And make no mistake, I think so many other passages echo in my mind when I, when I sit down and I do Bible study in Ephesians 6. I think of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 10.4 where he said that our weapons are not carnal, they're not fleshly, but they are mighty in God. I think of echoes from the Old Testament. Joshua 1.7, above all, be strong and courageous. I think of 1 Samuel 30 verse 6. David, he had, that, he had that moment where he could have been discouraged. He was facing a possible defeat. And what does 1 Samuel 30 verse 6 say? But David strengthened, them, strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And so when we come under attack, and I'm sure if you're watching this video, you're probably feeling under attack right now. You're probably feeling that this is a moment 
where you need armament, you need to be equipped, you need to be resourced. Go no further than Ephesians chapter 6, where we are told, make no mistake, six different times there is a preposition given to us that we are to fight against the enemy. The Christian life is, is not lived in isolation. It's not lived in neutrality. Um, we're either moving towards God or away from him. We're either living more for the Lord or we're not living for the Lord. And so it's the same in the spiritual battle. Um, there is no middle ground. I think it's important that we see that. That's why we're told again and again that we're to take up the full armor of God. Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Stop right now. Do you feel like you possess a strong faith, a victorious faith? Are you every single day putting on the six pieces of armor that we're going to talk about this week in session in this session in the dark side. If you're not, no wonder you're living in discouragement. No wonder you might be living in defeat. As Christians, we are to walk in victory. We already saw in session one that Satan has already been utterly defeated. We already saw in session two in Mark chapter nine that when we invite Jesus in the equation and all, all that's required of us is just simply to express faith, he's the game changer. Now we see these amazing resources that have been given to us to resist the devil. And that's why this, the New Testament writers take up this theme again and again of resisting and attacking Satan. We can do that. What did James say in James 4, 7? Submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will what? He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I think it's fascinating, though, that Paul is not the first one to take up this imagery of a battle. And I, I actually edit a series of the use of the Old Testament and the New, so I'm always fascinated when we hear Old Testament echoes. And often um, we forget that the Apostle Paul is simply, and again, Paul was a Jew. He's writing primarily to a Jewish audience in the first century. So when he starts using this, this, this um, verbiage of God as a divine warrior, as us being victory in a, victorious in a spiritual battle, if you and I were Jews in the first century, we would automatically think of Isaiah, where God is not just seen as the redeemer, he is seen as a divine warrior. And I'm thinking of Isaiah chapter 11, verses four and five. Think about this, Isaiah 59, 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate, as a helmet of salvation upon his head, he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in fury as a mantle. So we see 800 years before, we see that Isaiah is employing this unique verbiage that God will give us victory over the enemy. But I have to tell you this again, it doesn't happen automatically. We have to put on these things. That means making an effort. And that's why the Apostle Paul could say in Colossians 1.29, I think this is powerful. The power of God works in me mightily. I wanna be able to say that as a Christian, that I strive with, not with my own strength, not with some kind of natural ability, because gosh, I know my natural abilities will fail, but the power of God works mightily in me. We can say that. We can say that with the Apostle Paul, what he said in Colossians 1:29. Ephesians 6 says, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. That's what we're studying. Let's continue with the next part of this message, The Dark Side. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. This is a great place for us to cap this study because last week we looked at 
at the tools that we have to combat the enemy, but here we specifically see tactically and strategically how we face and overcome and transcend temptation. Temptation that every one of us face. And that's something that I want to tell many people when you face temptation, you think it's something just unique to you or that you might be a bad Christian. Temptation is part of every faith experience. And guess what? We see that nowhere closer than in the life of Jesus Christ. As we open up Matthew chapter 4, I often think of Mark chapter 1, because in Mark chapter 1, remember the Gospel of Mark says that the Holy Spirit drove Jesus to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And here we see in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. This is a fascinating, this is a fascinating episode in the life of Christ, and I, I want to I frame it up this way. I remember when my wife and I were leading a tour in the land of Israel, and we were at the wonderful site called Masada, near the Dead Sea. And we decided to lead our small group down the snake path of Masada, which takes about 20 minutes to walk downhill. I couldn't imagine uh, going uphill. When we were going downhill, I'll never forget how hot it was. We began to perspire. And I looked down and I saw these little stones on the side of Masada, and they almost looked like they could be pieces of bread. And I thought of this scene in Matthew chapter 4 where Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. He is in the Judean wilderness. Mark tells us that there were wild beasts that were out and around. We certainly know that from extra biblical history as well. And he is there and he is hungry. Jesus is in a weakened physical condition. And this is when his temptation begins. And, and I think something I want to say right at the outset of this session and something that I think you as the leader need to continue to explain as you impact this study, we need to make sure as followers of Jesus that the devil doesn't know the Bible better than we do. I just let that, let that sink in for a minute because as we see in these three specific temptations, Satan begins to quote the Old Testament scriptures to Jesus trying to get him to sin. Think about that for a moment. I want to ask you a question. Does Satan know the scriptures better than you do? I mean, think about this. As we open this temptation, we see in verse 3, the tempter approached Jesus. Now, as we saw in session one, when we talked about Satan, Satan is known by at least 10 different titles in the New Testament. This is the only place other than 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, where Satan is all actually called the tempter. And the tempter comes to Jesus. And he says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, it's important you know something about the force of the original. Of course, this was originally written in Koine Greek. And it's the force of the Greek is, since you are the Son of God, not if you are. Satan is not questioning whether or not Jesus is the Son of God. He is just simply trying to misdirect his messianic mission. Now, stop right there. How often does Satan want to misdirect our Christian lives? It is not through some huge, significant change. It's just a subtle sleight of hand. I can think of times in my life when I have been caught in the sleight of hand of the devil, can't you, where it's just been a misdirection, a wrong decision at the wrong moment that can derail everything. And so we see that's the case right here with Jesus. And he answered, what does Jesus do? How does Jesus combat temptation? I mean, it's so clear, sometimes people miss it. Jesus goes to the Word of God. Now, what book does he quote? Now, you need to know this in the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus quoted from the book of Deuteronomy more times than any other book, any other Old Testament writing. Jesus loved to use the book of Deuteronomy. And we see he doesn't go through a lot of 
um, a lot of exercise. He just simply settles right here in the Word of God, and he says, it is written, man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus is able, even though he's in a weakened condition, even though he's starving, even though there's wild beasts around him, he's fatigued, Jesus was prepared for that moment of, of, of temptation, so much so that right on the tip of his tongue, he could quote Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Stop right there. Satan has a tactical strategy to destroy you and to destroy me. What kind of effort have we made for when that moment of temptation comes to first know what it is to be able to identify it, but to have that scripture on the tip of our tongue, even though we're distracted, even though we're upset? I mean, how many of you know, I mean, Satan doesn't really tempt us on Sunday morning when we're at church, does he? It's when we've had those disappointments. It's when we're in the heat of the battle. And we need to have that scripture on the tip of our tongue ready to quote to him. And that is the only way we're going to be victorious. It is that easy. People miss it. Jesus could quote Deuteronomy 8.3 from memory after 40 days and 40 nights being tempted by the enemy. Now, the devil then, Jesus overcomes the first episode. In the second episode, I find it's interesting, the temptations of Jesus the altitude keeps increasing on him. We start right here in the wilderness, then we go to the pinnacle of the temple, then we're going to eventually see Jesus being tempted where he's able to see all the kingdoms of the world. And we would have seen that from a Jewish context in some satanic way. Jesus is able to see the entire Roman Empire. And Satan says, all of this I will give you. Now here's the key point. During the second episode, Satan tries to entrap Jesus by quoting Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12. He tells Jesus, again, misdirect his divine mission. Throw yourself down from the temple, Jesus, because you know it's written. It's written, angels will protect you. They will guide you. They will, they will uphold you. You won't be able to strike your foot against the stone. I mean, can't you see Satan quoting scripture out of context? And this is why it's so important we don't have buffet Christianity. I meet way too many fine Christians, but they have a buffet Christianity where they they know a little bit about this, a little bit about that, and they just grab these items like it's a buffet, and they don't see the Bible in full context. Scripture corroborates Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. And so we need to make sure that we don't ever engage in eisegesis, where we pull a Scripture out of context and we build an entire pretext on it. That's what Satan is doing. He's just simply trying to, again, get Jesus off mission. Jesus says, don't test the Lord your God, Deuteronomy 6.16. And then finally, we see that finally he quotes Deuteronomy 6.13 in the final episode where he says, go away, Satan, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, verse 11 is key because it says the devil left him in Matthew's gospel. I want to make sure you know something from the force of the Greek. It's in the present tense. He only left him for a short time. Satan was going to be ready to tempt Jesus again, and indeed he did. But you know what's cool? It says that angels came and served him. And you know what? That's actually a fulfillment of Psalm 91, isn't it? The very passage that Satan used out of context. We see angels serving Jesus. So when you're able to transcend that moment of temptation, refreshment will come from the Lord. But how do we do that? We do that based on Scripture. So it's really up to us this week in our study, and especially as we, as we dig deeper. Have you memorized those scriptures? Have you studied the word of God well enough that you can quote it in context accurately, but in the right moment that we need it?
And I want to thank you so much for joining me for the Dark Side series. I hope you've enjoyed uh, this experience of this Bible study. I have taken so much from this spiritually. I want to invite you to connect with me online. I want to stay in touch with you. If you have any questions based on this study, I'd love to hear from you. And more than anything else, I want to encourage you to continue to do Bible studies just like this with Lifeway, with Bible Studies for Life, as it equips you to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. What an important study for us today in the dark side. And I want to just share with you, when any time you move for God in your life, any time you take a step of faith, any time you decide that God is calling you to do something, reach someone, be an example, shine the light of Jesus Christ, you can immediately expect demonic opposition when you step forward in faith. Spiritual attacks are going to come, but guess what? We've just seen how we can be victorious. This is so important. Make sure you pray on this, study it, and never forget who you are in Jesus Christ, the battle armor you have, that you don't need to be afraid, and that guess what? God's given us a plan for victory. I'll be back with some final thoughts after this last break. Welcome back to the program. I have three final thoughts in less than 60 seconds as it relates to being victorious in your life. Number one, look to Jesus. Anytime you face spiritual attack, pray and keep your focus on Christ. Lean on Jesus for strength to stand, knowing Hebrews 2.18, for since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Number two, I want you to stay clear. If you know of people, places, or circumstances that fuel your vulnerability to temptation and spiritual attack, resolve to avoid those things. And then finally, the most important step, memorize God's word. Your word have I hidden in my heart, David said, so that I may not sin against you. Make scripture memory a weekly discipline and a habit in your life. Begin with memorizing verses that, of course, address those areas where you often feel tempted or under attack. Again, uh, this is just a staccato note, this entire broadcast of a Bible study that I've written called The Dark Side. Be sure and check it out. Can't wait to have you next week in our next program on The Jeremiah Johnston Show. Thank you for listening to The Jeremiah Johnston Show. If you have any follow-up questions from today's program, we'd love to hear from you. You can submit your questions at askjjj.com. From there, you can also connect with us across social media. All our conversations are available because of listener support. To find out more information, head over to myfaithradio.com. And so you never miss a show, you can subscribe to our podcast free in iTunes, the Google Play Store, or even our RSS feed. Thank you for sharing our show with a friend and growing the impact of our ministry.